0: job is to travel around to high schools all over the Portland metro area in the health classes, specifically, both public and private high schools, and we talk to the students about the importance of sexual integrity, and we start um, getting them to ask themselves the right questions, um, which I think is actually a part of what Jesus' ministry was while he was here. You know, he didn't always give us the right answers right away. When we'd ask him something, he'd ask another question, we'd be like, wait, what? What about that one, right? So that's what we try to do in the health classes, try to get the students to ask themselves The right questions. Now, I've been asked to share a little bit about how human sexuality is relevant to the conversation of the sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life upholds the idea that all life is sacred, that it is holy and to be treasured. And this conversation usually revolves around the protection of the unborn, right? Human beings. So then why are we talking about human sexuality? Well, the way I see it, these two conversations are actually inseparable, not only because one gives us the other, which is pretty amazing in its own right, but because if we're going to convey to the culture around us um, the image of God imprinted on one another, I think it's important that we also see the value in a person's sexuality, which in today's Western society can be a complex conversation, to say the least. We live in a world of competing narratives regarding sex. What do I mean when I say competing narratives? People are reading from different scripts, right? They have a different idea of how the play is supposed to go, of how they're supposed to operate in this world. There are so many different beginnings and endings, and the people in this story perceive so many different ways in which they should be behaving. And so the narratives are often incoherent. The narrative of the culture around us, especially in the Western society, tells a story about sex in which the primary goal in the act of sex is self-gratification. It's personal pleasure. That's the narrative of our culture. Concepts like relational connection, intimacy, procreation, the unification in marriage, all of these things are secondary to pleasure. Sex in popular culture is not all that big of a deal. Whoever is willing and able should participate freely without inhibition or regret. Right? With today's modern education on procreation, uh, protection, medicine, and social awareness, the risks to an individual are relatively nominal. Just be safe and have fun. Kind of the story we hear, right? In this culture, the act of sex is something fun and free. Everyone has sex. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even uneducated fleas, right? So why not? It can't really be that big of a deal. Yet time and time again, we see in popular culture, they make this effort to place a person's sexuality at the center of one's identity. Isn't that strange? That sex can be considered to be such a nominal thing in a person's life, yet their sexual orientation is central to who they are. It appears to me that there is a kink in the logic. Now, as, as I continue, I do want to note that I do see small children here with your parents and, and all of that. So um, I don't get graphic at any point during my message today, but I am very clear about certain things. And some of it may be very difficult to hear. And depending on what you're ready to talk about with your kids, I just wanted to give you a little heads up. Okay. All right. Cool. I don't see anybody bolting for the door, so I think we're okay. The porn and sex industries in our culture operate around this paradigm that sex is for your personal pleasure and preference. Why choose just one person or experience when there is a buffet, a flavor of the week? What will we be having today? The attitudes of porn and sex industries in the U.S. have permeated our way of thinking. And the narrative to which we as a society subscribe is this one. We live in a pornified culture. We do. Timothy Keller once said, if sex is money, then porn is a massive devaluation of currency. Now this metaphor only goes so far, but, but you get the concept. It's being cheapened, right? This is the narrative of our culture that only most of them can't see how the story is going to end most of the time until it's too late. They don't see the pain that's going to be coming. They don't see the hurt that will ensue When they operate against God's design, they don't see it. Now at this juncture, it may be easy to look at it all, right? And feel overwhelmed, disgusted, discouraged, hopeless. And perhaps we point a finger at the world around us and we condemn it. But I would like to challenge us to consider something. To consider the reality that we are all sexually broken. Some of us are heterosexually broken. Some of us are homosexually broken. But we all operate within the same broken system. We all have some kind of sexual brokenness as a part of our lives because we have been born into a fallen world. And perhaps the impact of just how broken we are is hidden from our spiritual eyes. So, We've taken a snapshot of the narrative of culture, right? Kind of the consumeristic, individualistic way that we think about sex in our culture. Um, And the the degree in which individuals embrace this narrative will vary from person to person depending on their background, their culture, etc. But now I want to take a look at the biblical narrative regarding sex and sexuality. What does God seem to be revealing about himself through the living word and testament of his people? Now, there's far more uh, to cover in the Bible about sex and sexuality than can be done in 40, 45 minutes. Um, And if you'd like to sign up for our six-hour parent forum, that's another discussion. Uh, But I'm just going to focus on a couple of of key points uh, involving the act of sex specifically and how um, what we do with our sex can impact the way we see human beings in our society, sanctified or not. Uh, and at this point, too, I also want to pull up our, our scripture passages passages, excuse me, that we're going to be pulling from for today. Um you don't have to open your Bibles to them if you don't want to. I'm going to be going back and forth fairly rapidly. Um this is not going to be an expository sermon on one passage, so I'm just going to read some of those for you now and a note that I will be pulling from those for the rest of the, our time together. First one is genesis one twenty six through twenty seven Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish." In the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God made mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female. He created them. Genesis 2, 20-25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, also translated side, and then closed up the side with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 1 Corinthians 6, 5-19 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality all of the sins a person commits are outside the body but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God you are not your own you were bought with a price therefore honor God with your bodies and the last passage we'll look at today is revelation 21 uh, 21 through um, through five, oh, sorry one through five. from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who is seated on the throne has said, Behold, I am making all things new. Okay, so that's a lot. <laughs> We're going to be pulling from those four passages as we go through our principles today. We reviewed, um, as popular culture, it's often perceived that sex in its very nature is outside of the self, right? Sex doesn't have to impact you as a person. The main purpose in sex is pleasure and self-gratification. So there is no meaning in sex other than what we put in it. Okay, that's culture's narrative. During our time together, we're going to walk through what the biblical view of sex is and how the popular culture's view of sex is actually in direct opposition to God's design. In fact, I would go as far as to say that as we devalue the act of sex, and minimize its meaning, we may unknowingly be devaluing human beings themselves. Because pleasure is not the main objective. Rather, pleasure is the reinforcement of a much deeper act of greater significance. So, there are four biblical principles I'd like to unpack with us today. The first is that sex and marriage, biblically, are inseparable. They are united. The second is that sex is relational. The third, that sex impacts the whole person. And the fourth, that sex is without shame. Okay? So sex and marriage are inseparable. Sex is relational. Sex impacts the whole person. And sex is without shame. Okay? So, let's dive into this first one. Sex was designed to unify in marriage. So a biblical understanding of sex... Sorry, if sex is that sex and marriage are one, right? They happen at the same time. You might be surprised to hear, though, that there are no actual commands in Scripture that say do not have premarital sex. They say do not commit adultery. They say do not be sexually immoral. But in the Ten Ten Commandments, it says do not commit adultery. Paul mentions in First First Corinthians that young people should get married if they're struggling to be sexually pure. But there actually isn't anything crystal clear on premarital sex itself. Now, don't throw anything at me. Don't get mad yet. <laughs> um, do you know why? It's because in the Bible, sex and marriage from the very beginning are not able to be pulled apart. They're inseparable, right? Talk about sex without marriage, or vice versa, biblically is impossible. In First Corinthians six sixteen, Paul warns the Corinthians not to have sex with prostitutes because they would become one flesh, and it's in quotations. What is he referencing? Genesis, the mandate for God's people for what marriage and unification should be. In the Jewish culture, sex is what sealed the covenant in a marriage, right? The wedding was not over until the bride and groom would go into their little tent and consummate. The family would wait outside of the tent until they were done. And then after they were done, they would come back and join the party. (laughs) Can you guys reimagine your weddings now with your (laughs) in-laws? Strange, right? But that was it. That was the sealing of the covenant, was sex. Why do you think God commanded the circumcision of all men? Isn't that kind of weird? You know how you're going to be my people? You're going to cut off part of yourself where it hurts the most. (laughs) Why? God chose to place a sign of his covenant with his people where his people would make a covenant with one another. Profound, yeah? John Piper once said, God created us in his image, male and female, with the personhood and sexual passions so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. Of love that. It gives us this, this language for the yearning of God's heart for ours, right? In Song of Solomon, people often debate. Right? They say either Song of Solomon is a literal, um, sexually explicit, graphic telling of a sexual relationship between two people. Or they say, no, 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 it's only metaphorical. It's only to describe God and, the, and, and his people and Israel. I'd like to say that it's both. <laughs> it's both of, both of those things. They are really describing intimate, explicit sexual imagery. And it puts language to this yearning of God's heart to be united with his bride. This is also why the Bible often describes Israel as an adulterous woman. Ezekiel 16 is a whole blurb, I guess you could say, on how Israel is being an adulterous woman towards God, her husband. And just a side note here, before we keep going, sexual pleasure is a good thing. In fact, God designed sex to feel good. The problem is he didn't design sex to be the goal. Right? I said this before, he designed sex to be the reinforcement. When we make sex the, uh, make the pleasure of sex the primary goal, we flip the process on its head. It's kind of like putting your tires on the hood of a car. Right? We'll get back to that in a second. So, our response to culture as we see God's biblical principles of sex and marriage, and we see theirs as not united. Right? We see that sex can actually be a means in our culture to determine whether or not marriage is valid. Right? I hear people tell me things like this all the time. They say, well, what if the sex isn't good? Why would I buy a car without test driving it first? Right? That's how they relate sex to committing to someone. There is this fear of the unknown quality of the sex, but we learn from the Bible that love is without fear. Right? With physical pleasure at the center, it cripples us. Because the reality is the physical pleasure part of sex can take time to do well. It can be a learning curve in getting there, right? The media, our entertainment, doesn't show sex for what it really is. It's all fantasy, right? They don't show the struggles and the frustrations, the pain that can occur inside of a sexual relationship. Sex is great and amazing, but not for a lot of the reasons that culture tries to portray it. Right, Biblical sex doesn't use pleasure as an indicator of its goodness or the quality of the sex. The goodness of sex is bound up in so much more. It's bound up in the intimacy, the vulnerability, the exclusivity, the covenantal unification, the nakedness without shame. But if physical pleasure is the main objective, then sex will actually never be good enough. It won't. Because that's not how it was intended to be. By all intents and purposes, sex is typically a preference issue today in relationships. Because marriage is actually a preference issue in today's culture. I will love you forever, unless, or until, dot, dot, dot. Which actually brings us to our next principle. That sex is relational. Relational. So we see echoed in Scripture this idea of two becoming one flesh. This happens with Paul and and with Moses, right? Sex is deeply, as Paul puts it, mysterious in that there is a oneness that occurs. Two distinct people becoming one. Not two halves becoming one, two wholes becoming one. I often hear people introduce their spouses as this is my other half or my better half. And I get the heart. It's very sweet. I'm not trying to call you out if that's how you introduce your spouse. But, truly, you are not a half of a person. You're not. You're a whole person. And the awesome and wonderful nature of your spouse, and as, an, as incredible as that union may be, without that person, you are not made incomplete. In Jesus, you are actually whole. Which I actually think makes the covenant between the two of you far more meaningful, in my opinion. I didn't marry my wife because I had to, out of necessity, right? I married my wife because I chose to tie my life to hers. And I took all the responsibilities thereof. That's what I think makes the relationship powerful, makes the union powerful. God didn't want to unite with his people because he needed us. God doesn't need us. We need him. He chose to unite us with him because he loved us right chose to tie his existence to ours even unto death it's kind of profound right this is actually the closest that we will ever get to understanding the trinity right one god three persons two people one marriage and this alludes to this idea that we are made in his, in his image god in of his very nature is relationship crazy when we exist in relationship with one another It is in order to reflect the personhood of our creator, who is in relationship with himself. But we live in the age of the sexual revolution, right? Which, despite popular opinion, was not a great victory for independence and the pursuit of happiness. It was actually a great tragedy. With the seeming alleviation of the consequences of sex through protection and birth control, the idea arose that sex could now, because the dangers are, 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 are minimal, that sex can be just about my pleasure. It can be just about me. Out of the ashes of the so-called sexual revolution, sex is now a product to be consumed Why feminists of the day felt liberated by this is actually beyond me, because women didn't win in the sexual revolution. Women became objects to be consumed by men, products to be bought and sold and to be conquered. Now, many feminists today, not all, but many feminists, choose to take a strategy that isn't to bring about the dignity of the female form and to see an end to the objectification of women, but rather they return the favor and we see a surge in which women in our culture who practice uh, are beginning to practice sexual consumption a lot like men do. In our culture today, statistically speaking, 85% of adult men watch pornography. 85. 50% of women watch pornography. That's much higher than it used to be. Within the last 10 years, it's surged quite a bit, from about 18% in the early 2000s, late 90s, to about 50% now. So we see not uh, a a restoration to the female form, we see an equal objectification of the male form arising. Uh, This is what's happening in our culture. So what happens then when people become products? What happens when sex is not about the relational gift or uh, a covenant or about the unification of persons? People become objectified. But our culture would say, "No, no, 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 not really. Because sex doesn't have to impact you as a person. It's just sex. Just sex. Which actually brings us to our third principle, which sex does impact the entire person. This is kind of where we get to see how science, this is my my favorite part of my presentations in high schools, we get to see where science has revealed and affirmed the truth and the reality of how God designed sex. However, when I'm in the public schools, I can't talk about God but it's kind of cool to see uh, the fingerprints of design in it. It is a popular idea right now to say that sex doesn't impact me as a person. It's just something that I do with my body. That's all it is. It's like boxing or whatever. And this is how, where we see Greek philosophy still having an impact on our culture today. In our culture, we tend to see uh, three parts to a person, right? We have the body, we have the mind, And we have the spirit. That's how we think about a person. That's the physical, the mental and emotional, and then the spiritual. That's how we kind of break up a human being. But to a Jewish person living in Old Testament times, this would be kind of a foreign concept. Um, Jews saw everything as the whole person, which makes sense. This is why a physical act like sex in and of itself can be a spiritual thing. Um... Because they're the same. Uh, John Mark Comer, he's a pastor on the the west side. He uh, gave an illustration once about Jesus. And somebody approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, how is your spiritual life going? And Jesus goes, my spiritual life? You mean my life? (laughs) Right? It's this idea that they're actually united. Everything we do in the physical is spiritual. And we experience the spiritual in physically manifest ways, don't we? There are certain benefits of dividing up the person this way, educationally speaking, academically speaking. It helps us to understand the complexities of a human being. But the point is, what we do with the physical is deeply spiritual. It has an impact. This is the part of the content that I get to share with students, some of the uh, science behind sexual activity. Modern technology has kind of given us insight and a window to kind of investigate the mysteries of sex. So... Um, This is where I get kind of TED talkish, and I stop giving a sermon, which is actually kind of fun for me. I hope it's fun for you and educational. Um, But uh, your brain is filled with all kinds of neurochemicals, right? Neurochemicals and hormones that act in different ways at different times to achieve certain goals, right? Sex is no different. When someone engages in sexual activity and sexual arousal of any kind, the brain releases a, a cocktail of neurochemicals. And there are three that I kind of want to talk about. The first one is dopamine. Dopamine is the brain's reward chemical. It helps create pleasure in the brain system, in the neural system, right? When you do something that's good for your body or or it thinks is good for your body, it releases dopamine in order to feel pleasure, in order to gain a reward. We experience the release of dopamine when we have sex, when we eat really good food, right? When we eat that like deep fried chocolate stuff, right? We feel like we're getting a nice big warm hug. That's dopamine that gets released. And ironically, also when we exercise, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger got addicted to lifting weights. A lot of people do, right? You can get experience a runner's high, right? That's because dopamine is being released in your brain to encourage you to keep doing it as a reward. We also release dopamine when we use drugs, and that can be harmful, right? That can overstimulate the neural pathways. It can cause addictions, all kinds of things. So that's dopamine, okay? Oxytocin is the second neurochemical, oxytocin. Oxytocin is sometimes referred to as the love hormone or the cuddle hormone More accurately speaking oxytocin is a bonding chemical It helps human beings to feel attached to feel connected to feel intimate and to feel safe We release oxytocin in our brains when we have sex When we express uh, physical affection for one another Females especially release more oxytocin than males do holding hands cuddling these kinds of things, which is why it often appears that in a relationship, females tend to value physical, uh, physical affection more than males do. It's not that males aren't enjoying it. It's just that typically the female brain is wired to feel safer while this is happening, right? They did this study at a university, and I can't remember the name of the university. It escapes me for the moment. But they had females with neuro receiver things all over their head into their brain, right? And they had both friends and strangers come into this room and hug them for 25 seconds. And they found that friend or stranger, that female released oxytocin after 25 seconds of being held. Fascinating. They also release oxytocin when they're breastfeeding. um, Things like this. And mommy and baby both release oxytocin, creating a neurological bond between the two of them. So that's oxytocin. And then vasopressin. Vasopressin is a hormone that creates protective instincts, helps us to want to guard one another. So males and females alike both release vasopressin when they're having sex, which makes them want to feel protective over the other person. We also release vasopressin when we're hanging out with our children, right? As we babysit, as we, as we braid hair, as we play ball, our brain starts to release the hormone vasopressin to help us to feel protective over this human being. Making sense? Am I losing you yet? Three in the afternoon. All right. So these are the neurochemicals in our brain, right? That, that kind of create a sexual experience. We have dopamine. This kind of gives us a euphoric sense of pleasure. It's a reward for what we're doing. There's oxytocin, which kind of bonds us together like glue, connection, intimacy. And there's vasopressin, which helps us to feel protective over one another. Now, oxytocin and vasopressin, these hormones actually do act a lot like a glue, like duct tape. When we have sex with somebody, we stick. And as we release oxytocin and vasopressin, it creates this bond. And the more these two people actually have sex, the stronger this connection gets, the stronger the glue becomes, the more effective those hormones become. But the opposite is true if there's multiple relationships casually, sexually. So oxytocin and vasopressin actually start to lose their effectiveness over a period of time. So if a person has sex with someone... And then they move on to somebody else. And then somebody else. And then somebody else. The brain starts to get confused as they move along from person to person because this tape is being ripped off each surface and stuck to something else. And now that piece of tape isn't as sticky as it used to be. Now, people in our popular culture and our media and TV shows that we all watch, they kind of say, oh, this is a good thing. This is a sign that I'm sexually mature, that I'm an adult, right? That I can go around and have sex with people and it doesn't really impact me, it's just something that I do for fun. Okay, maybe it's maturity coming out in you, or maybe your brain's actually being damaged. Maybe after a while, your ability to connect in this very human way is being taken away from you slowly. Now, the when oxytocin and vasopressin get taken away, and the impact of this glue is less and less and less, we see sex become about something else. What? Dopamine about the pleasure and when sex is not about the relationship not about the connection not about the intimacy and sex is only about the pleasure it becomes the goal and not the reward we actually see something devastating start to take place the same chemical reaction that's active in your brain during things like um, uh, dopamine that's during sex can also occur during drugs right When you you get addicted to cocaine or heroin, dopamine is responsible. The same thing when it comes to sex addiction and pornographic addiction. This is why 88% of online pornography contains violence. 88% of online pornography contains violence. Why? Well, if we understand the way drugs work, it's easy to see. If I use heroin for the first time, right... I'm going to get a certain high. I'm going to feel a certain way. But as I continue to use heroin, the goodness that I feel gets less and less. It starts to diminish, right? And so I need to up the dosage. And it helps for a while, but then after that same dosage has been used for a bit, it feels less and less good. And so what I have to do is I have to up and up the dosage, and then it feels less and less good. But I up the dosage, and then it feels less and less good. And then eventually those lines cross, and I don't feel good at all. I just need heroin in my system to even feel okay. That's an addiction. 88% of online pornography contains violence because it escalates in the same way. As people start out watching pornography, which, by the way, the average um, age uh, that someone is exposed to pornography is 11. 11. Average age, which means there are those much younger that are being exposed to it. And it's not just males, it's females again, like I said. The porn industry makes more money every year than the NFL, the MLB, and the NBA combined. Put together. Crazy money, right? Porn makes more than all of them. And when somebody starts watching pornography, they're not likely to watch a really graphic, intense, explicit image. They're going to start with something far less intense. But after a while, that's not enough. So it escalates. And it continues the same way it does with Heroin. Until eventually some people get so far down the lines of their pornographic and sexual addictions they can't even feel sexually aroused anymore unless they're watching something completely obscene happening on that screen. Brutal. This is why sex impacts the entire person. This is what I tell people in high schools. I say, yeah, maybe you're not getting pregnant. Maybe you're not getting an STI or an STD. But something is happening. What you do with your sexuality can actually alter your brain chemistry. It can change the way you think about another human being. Just think about it. When you're watching pornography, when you're sleeping with somebody just to have sex with them not because of who they are, in those moments, you're not thinking who is this person? How many siblings do they have? What's their favorite color? Are they afraid? Is that smile fake? When they were five years old, what did they want to do when they grew up? You're not thinking about any of that. You're thinking, what can this person do for me right now to make me feel good? And then when I'm done with that person or that image, I move on to something else. And then someone else. And then something else. And I continue to do this. And all of a sudden, between minutes at a time sometimes, something happens. Human sexuality becomes something cheap to be consumed. A can of soda. Like buying a t-shirt. As we devalue sexuality in our culture, we devalue human beings. That's what happens. So I tell this to these students, and I show them the science behind it, and I, I tell them to them it logically, and they all stare at me. They're like, I never thought about it that way. Because it's so much more than the diseases you get, or the unwanted pregnancies. It impacts the way you see human beings in our society. So when I talk to young people about this, even young people in the church, um, I see a a trend. And that trend is that we start asking ourselves um, the wrong question. Often in relationships we ask, how far can I go? Where is the line? Where do I have to stop before I've gone too far? Or before I sin?" How far can I go? Isn't this a question that we're familiar with, that we hear a lot? Right? Even amongst people who aren't in the Christian community, they ask, where is the line? And it's the wrong question. When we look at Matthew 5, which I didn't put on the screen, I apologize for that. But Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. Jesus seems to be saying, you know, whether or not you actually are having sex with people you aren't supposed to isn't the issue. The problem is that you are failing to see the divine image of God on this person. The fingerprint of my design, and therefore you refuse to see their sexuality as sacred or treasured. You've objectified them. That's the issue right there. So our question as young people even shouldn't be, where is the line? The question we should be asking is, what is my heart? What is my intent? Human dignity, human sanctity can only be found in the idea that we are created. Which is why if you don't see design in human beings, there cannot be a mandate for sex. I know that's really heavy stuff. Are you still with me? Are we okay? Okay. I feel like it's important that we cover that, and I know it can be fairly edgy for a lot of us, but we have to understand that if the average age that somebody discovers porn is 11, that these people are going to be learning about sex at some point from someone, would you rather it be from us, the church, or from the pornified, over-sexualized, individualized culture that we live in? So yes, the church needs to talk about sex do so our fourth point is this sex is without shame even after all of this all of that I've told you it's important that we aren't bogged down with the idea that sex is ruined that sex is dirty or that it's bad because sex is good God created sex as a beautiful gift for all of humankind and after he did it he said it was good he created it that way now I have a theory Now, this is just the gospel according to Lane, so take it with a grain of salt. But I have a theory that even our popular culture deep down innately perceives sex to be dirty. I do. Think about the language that is used around sex. We say things like, oh, that's dirty, or that's nasty, even ironically, right? I'm naughty, or you're bad. Oh, it feels so wrong, but it feels so good. Our literature and our media uses words like forbidden in its erotica. See, There's some kind of excitement in breaking the rules, right? In doing something naughty. Now, don't get mad at me, but I think the church is actually partially to blame for this. Not your church. The church. Capital C Church. (laughs) No, I'm not saying that the church is responsible for the fallen heart of humankind. and I'm not blaming the church for sin nature. But I think we have had a hand... In this concept that sexual desires are innately shameful. And there is a difference between sex being sacred and sex being shameful. There's a difference. We are often told growing up that sex is bad until you get married. Suppress your sexuality until you get married and then do whatever you want. Go hog wild. Kind of the message that I got growing up, right? Sex is something we don't like to talk about. Even though the Bible is filled with erotic imagery. Song of Solomon is a great example for this, but even in the Proverbs, it encourages young men to enjoy the breasts of their wives. Pretty blatant. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked with one another, and there was no shame. See, we have raised a generation of young people who have rarely heard sex talked about in the church, unless it's to say, don't do it. Then they encounter this hypersexualized, pornified culture all around them, and they are under-equipped to engage as disciples of Jesus in the real world. We, as a people of God, need to come out of sleeping. We need to wake up. We need to come out of the shadows. And we need to understand that people are being exposed to this stuff, whether we talk about it or not. Do we really want the first thing they learn about sex to be from pornography? Do we really want the main education about such complex things? of our personhood to come from a pornified society. A lot of Christian good-hearted abstinence programs use methods of fear and shame to keep people from having sex, right? If you have sex, bad things will happen. You'll get a disease, you'll get pregnant, and you'll die, right? It's kind of the, the methods that are used. Or even worse, they say if you have sex before marriage, you won't be worth as much to your spouse, You won't be as valuable. What are we doing? Is that how we want things to get done? Is that how we want righteousness to be brought about, fear and shame? These types of methods lead me to believe that we actually, as a church, haven't truly embraced the hope found in Jesus. Do we truly believe that He can make all things new? Do we truly believe that he can pick us up out of the ashes of what we've done and make something beautiful again? We need to stop wearing virginity and sexual purity like it's some kind of a badge or a club card. Our righteousness is like rags to God. When we look at a person with lust, we've already lost that battle. So we cannot boast in ourselves. We can only boast In the saving power of Jesus Christ. We are all sexually broken in need of the loving mercy of our Creator. So what is God calling us to? Are we to acknowledge the hopelessness and all the evil around us and hunker down in our holy bunkers to condemn all the sexually immoral and wait for the end? Are we to abandon all the people around us to a life of unending sexual brokenness? And to push God's people into a category of impure when they fall prey to sexual temptation. See, if we do that, then we are no better than those who objectify people as sexual objects. Because we have failed to see the imprint of God in that person's life. We have failed to see that human beings were made in God's divine image and there is hope. We have to believe that there is power in the name of Jesus to renew what's been broken, to restore what's been stolen, to heal what's been bruised, to rebuild what's been destroyed, to make whole what has been ravaged, to make clean the fabric of our souls, to forgive all manner of sin and to bring light to every dark place, to raise to life what is dead. How do we help others to see the sanctity of human life? We have to see it first. We do. So, I'm going to pray. I know that's heavy. But I feel like it's important that we talk about sex in these terms. Because the world needs the church to participate in these conversations. It needs it. So I'm gonna pray, and if the worship team's gonna come up and respond, or if somebody's gonna come up and pray afterwards, that's that's great. But I'm gonna pray first now, okay? Heavenly Father, you are the giver of life. All things that have been made are good because you have made them so. Forgive us for taking the gifts that you give us and distorting them, bending them to our sinful nature. Show us the way. Lord, there is so much brokenness in the world around us, in our relationships, in ourselves, and you are the only one that can make us whole again. Lord, help us to align our hearts with yours. Help us to see your divine fingerprints, your perfect image on all people. Help us to hope in you, because there is power in your name. We love you, Jesus, and we trust you. Amen. Thank you.